Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to The Grove. We are kicking off a new series this morning called Creed. And this word creed comes from a Latin origin, and it's the word credo. And it comes from the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. And so a few thousand years ago, we're in a Latin church saying the Apostles' Creed, it would begin like this, credo in deum, I believe in God. And as it was translated into English, we took this word creed, and that word just literally means I believe. That's what a creed is. It's a statement of beliefs. It's a declaration of things that you hold to be true, ideas, concepts, things that you're willing to commit your life to. This is what the Apostles' Creed is. This is what we're going to be talking about for the next six or so weeks, is this collection of statements organized about 1,600 years ago in the early church that contain the essence, the core, the essentials of the Christian faith. Now, as you look through the creed, you may be familiar with it. Uh, it's not exhaustive. It was never meant to be, but it contains the essentials. If you had to distill down the Christian faith to a, a group of ideas, to a group of belief statements, it would be this phrase. Now, if you're like me, your first experience with the Apostles' Creed came maybe when you were a child in church. My first experience with the Apostles' Creed came every Sunday morning at First United Methodist Church in Wichita Falls. And some point during the service, the minister would say, and now turning your hymnals to page 881, and then you would turn to the Apostles' Creed. And if you had some kind of perverse sickness like my family did, we would race to see who could turn to page 881 as fast as possible because in my family, everything has to be a competition. And so we would turn to the Apostles' Creed and then we would say these words together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And that's the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you were familiar with that, you were tracking along, you're like, all right, is he going to be able to say this in its entirety without messing up in front of people? And fortunately, I did. That would have been really embarrassing to be teaching and beginning a whole series on the Apostles' Creed and not be able to recite it for you this morning. But what we're going to be talking about is this idea of what it means to believe in something. Because this, uh, this word believe or this idea of a belief is not limited to a theological space. Or it's not limited to church and to religion. We believe lots of things in our life. We hold lots of beliefs in our life. Some of our beliefs are individual. They reflect a preference or an opinion that we have about something. You know, maybe it's something trivial like, you know, if the Mavs could only get Lucas some help, we would actually have been able to beat the Clippers in the playoffs this year. It might be something like that. That might be your belief. Maybe you don't share that belief. Or we never should have paid Dak all that money, and I think that wouldn't have been the best way to spend money for the organization on the Cowboy. You know, some of those things. Maybe your beliefs extend beyond the sports space and realm. Maybe you're a dog person, or maybe you're a cat person. It's a belief that we share. It's an opinion. It's a preference that we hold. Now, that's kind of a simple, silly, trivial level of belief. But sometimes our beliefs are more important. Sometimes we ascribe to sets of ideas. We ascribe to ideologies. Oftentimes we see this happening most notably kind of in the political space. You believe in a big government. I believe in a small government. 
the ways that we share about how the world should be run or how life should be organized. Maybe you have beliefs about actions and behaviors that certain people do and should have. I believe that it's proper to, after attending an event, to send a thank you note as a follow-up or a text will suffice. It doesn't matter. You have different beliefs on how etiquette and human interaction should go. We have all of these beliefs. But when we think about the way that our beliefs begin to impact our lives, sometimes we have these deeper-seated beliefs that they're more significant, they're more substantial. They're beliefs that we're willing to stake in our identity to. They're beliefs that we're willing to allow it to influence the choices that we make in our lives, the things that we're willing to commit to and sacrifice our lives for. You see this notably all throughout history when men and women have bravely committed themselves to a belief that their sacrifice for the betterment of others is worthwhile. It's something that they have chosen to do because they believe in the, va- in the values that they're fighting for, that they're standing up for, that they're committed to. You know, our beliefs shape us both for good and for bad. I think an easy kind of low-hanging example of the impact that our beliefs can have on us happened about 60 years ago during World War II. There was this belief, this series of ideas and values that this Jewish group of people was subhuman, that they were detestable, and that they were deserving of extermination. This was an idea that became a belief that became held by an entire group of people and incredible gross human atrocities were committed based on this belief. Now that's kind of a somber, ugly version of how our beliefs can shape us, but there's lots of beautiful versions too. All throughout history, we've seen people making sacrifices for the betterment of others, hospitals, institutions, organizations created in the name of helping other people less fortunate than themselves based on a group of their beliefs. And so this is what we're going to be talking about over the next several, several weeks is what exactly is contained in this statement of belief that the Apostles' Creed holds. Maybe you grew up in a church with it. Maybe these words sounded foreign and strange to you. Maybe you don't really understand everything that you've maybe grown up saying your entire life. Like, for example, why does it say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church? I'm Methodist. That doesn't make sense. Why do we say that? We'll get to that. There are lots of things contained in this statement of beliefs, but I think one of the things that's important to recognize is beliefs aren't just ideas. They're not just facts, things that we know to be intellectually true. They're not these intellectual assents that we understand as being valid or right or correct. They're also things that we can commit our lives to. They're things that shape our behavior. This is why our beliefs matter. Because it's not just that we can hold these individual ideas, it's because these ideas, these beliefs begin to manifest in our life. They turn into choices and turn into actions. And this is not kind of a a common understanding of the importance of beliefs nowadays. Nowadays we're in this world, kind of in this postmodern world, where everything is allowed to be relative. There's this moral relativism that exists in the world that you believe what you want to believe and I'm going to believe what I want to believe and that's okay and we don't have to have a conversation about the differences in our beliefs because we're allowed for every type of belief to be subjective. And because of that, you see organizations and groups and people starting to back down from taking a stand in what they believe because it's now subject to criticism all throughout the media and all throughout our culture. People who have... have 
held a long-standing traditional belief are oftentimes coming under fire for those beliefs because it doesn't have to be true for everybody. And while I think we should allow our beliefs to enter into the marketplace of ideas, to be challenged, to be discussed, to be warped through, I do think that as people of faith, we are at risk of letting go of some really important beliefs that have stood for 2,000 years. And so one of the goals of this series, not only is to help us understand what's contained in this statement of beliefs, is to remind us of the importance that these beliefs have in our life. They matter because they're not just ideas. And as we'll see, there's something that we're actually saying that we're committing our lives to following in a way that shapes our behavior. See, there's a difference between kind of knowledge and trust or knowledge and commitment. Uh, One of the things that I occasionally like to do in my free time is I like to go like backpacking and camping and sometimes rock climbing. And I have a friend that we go rock climbing together occasionally and his name's Clint and Clint uh, has a high level of confidence about his ability in the the backcountry. And he's always willing to share all of his ideas and knowledge about how you should do things and the right way to do things. And so one day we were um, setting up some rope to climb this face. And so what you have to do is you have to go to the top where you want to anchor the rope so that you can go down to the bottom and then the rope's sturdy and so then you can put your weight on the rope. And so Clint went up to the top because he was, he's the self-proclaimed expert. He knows all of the things. And he goes to the top, makes sure all the ropes has all the safety things and the extra carabiners and webbing and all the things that you do to make sure that you're ready to actually put your weight on the rope. So he goes up, sets it all up, and then he comes down and is getting ready to belay me. And so uh, I get about four feet off the ground, and I'm like kind of bouncing on the rope just to make sure that if I fall, I don't fall far. And he says, what's the deal? Climb. And I said, I'm just making sure that it's safe. And he says... I know it's safe because I set it up. And I said, I know you know it's safe, but there's a big difference between knowing that you know it's safe and being willing to trust my life and your knowledge of it being safe. The same is true with, it's true with our beliefs. It's one thing to just know these ideas, to have this kind of intellectual understanding about maybe what's contained in Scripture or what Christians for 2,000 years have believed to be true, in this world and realm of understanding who God is in the world and how God has created and orchestrated the world. It's one thing to hold these ideas, but it's another thing to commit, commit your life to them. It's another thing to be willing to stake your actions and your behaviors on them. It's similar in many ways to marriage. It's one thing to know the vows that you're going to be saying, to stand across from someone and make that claim about what you're committing yourself to, to know the words that you're saying and to understand the ideas that you're communicating. But then to actually do it, to actually live it out, to actually commit your life to the things that you're saying, those are very different expressions. Those are very different activities. And so I want to spend some time today just looking at the origin of where we get this idea of a creed this idea of a commitment to something that we profess to believe, the statement that we make, and the impact that it can have on our lives. And to do so, I want to kind of go back to one of the very first times in the New Testament that someone made a statement of faith. And this occurs in a conversation between Jesus and his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have your phones, you can pull them out. If you don't have your phones and you don't want to look up with us, I'll put it on the screen 
but we're going to be in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and I believe it is verse 13. If it's not, just look up on the screen. So here's what happens in this conversation. Jesus has been doing a bunch of ministry. People have seen some incredible things that they didn't expect to see or experience. And so he's been healing people. He's been feeding people. He's been teaching people in a way that has dramatically impacted people. And word is starting to spread about this guy named Jesus. And because of this, Jesus, in a side conversation with his disciples, uses this as an opportunity to just kind of probe what it is that people are saying about who he is. And so this is what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they begin to kind of make a list of kind of some of the understandings or the ideas related to who Jesus might be. And they said, you know, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're kind of Elijah reincarnated. Others say you're Jeremiah or maybe one of the other prophets. And so there's this list, this growing idea of trying to figure out exactly who Jesus is, wrestling with what they're experiencing and how they can kind of wrap their brains around what's happening with what they're seeing in the world through this person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus kind of turns it and he says, but but who do you, who do you say that I am? And this is the question that he kind of leaves them with. And it's the first time that Jesus kind of creates some space to allow the disciples to sit in reflection of everything that they've experienced and begin to wrestle with what it is they actually believe about who he is. And this question is at the heart of the creeds. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. This question is kind of the the hinge on which the door of Christianity swings is the answer to this question. Who do you say that I am? Because if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, or if he is just a really wise guy, or if he is just a prophet in line with a bunch of other prophets, then a lot of the things that we claim to believe and a lot of the implications that those beliefs have on our actions and our day-to-day life don't really matter. That's why this question is so important. And so this is what Peter says in response to that question. Simon Peter answered. He says, you are the Christ. Maybe your translation says you are the Messiah. Or maybe it says you are Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is the first time that we see this declaration and this statement of belief, this statement of faith, this acknowledgement and naming of who Jesus actually is. And this is the kernel, this is the nugget, this is the beginning of 2,000 years of history of development and thought and idea around who Jesus is. This is the very first original statement of faith. This is the very first creed recorded in the Gospels. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then from there, over the centuries, the early church began to kind of flesh out some of the nuances and some of the kind of the finer points about what this actually meant as people begin to wrestle with the implications of this single idea and they begin to form it. And so the Apostles' Creed, as you heard me say earlier this morning, that began to take form around 400 A.D. And then over time, it kind of got finalized around 700 A.D. So almost 1,500 years, we've had this creed in its final form, this statement of faith declaring and making an answer of who Jesus is. 
And this is what Jesus says in response to Peter's answer. And this is why our beliefs matter so much. This is the impact that our beliefs can begin to have on us and why we're going to take the time to spend six weeks unpacking those statements and those declarations of faith contained in the creed. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, the reason he calls him Simon, son of Jonah, is up until that point in Peter's life, that is all anybody has ever called Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, because his name is Simon, and he's Jonah's son. So they called him Simon, son of Jonah. I know you were struggling with that, but I just wanted to kind of spell that out for you this morning. So, you know, really digging into the Bible here. But Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, and then this is what happens, and this is the transformation and shift in Peter's life. Based on what Peter believes, he receives a new identity. He experiences some transformation in who he understands himself to be in relationship to who God is. And so this is what Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, Simon, son of Jonah. You are now called Peter. You have a new name. And as we've talked about at times here in the church, names were significant back in that day and age. It wasn't just something that somebody called you, but it bestowed significance, it bestowed purpose, it bestowed identity beyond just the name. And so here's what's happening in this moment. In the original language, Jesus is kind of setting up this wordplay between the name Peter and what he says next. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And this word Peter and this word rock, they sound really similar. And so it's kind of this kind of clever little wordplay that Jesus is making about who Peter's identity is. And this is what we see happening with these statements of faith throughout the history of the church. When you make and profess a belief, a statement of faith about who do you say that I am, about who Jesus is, it begins to evoke a new identity upon your life. And so this is what happened with the early church. They took this and they partnered it with this other ritual and this other practice that, began, that they understood conferred identity upon people, the practice and the sacrament of baptism. Now, what the early church and the church for 2,000 years has believed about baptism is there is something that happens in baptism that marks a change in your life. It is believed that you are, die, you are res- dead you die with Christ, and then upon coming out of the water, you are resurrected into a new life with Christ, and thus you take on a new identity as a son and daughter of God. This is what kind of Christians believe happens in baptism. Now, it's not as dramatic in our church because we sprinkle with water, and so there's not like the big dunking and the resurrection, but it still confers the same idea. There is a turning point, there's a mark and a shift in a person's identity when they become baptized. And so, Christians took this practice of baptism and they married it with this profession of faith. And so in the very early church, they used this statement of faith as a type of catechesis for new believers who wanted to become baptized to become Christian. And so they would educate them about what the essentials of the faith were using this this creed or this statement. And then in the moment of baptism, they would be gathered before the whole church. And imagine I had a big tank of water and somebody was standing in it ready to profess their belief in Jesus. And so then I would ask them, I say, do you believe in God the Father? And then they would say, I believe. And then down to the water they'd go. And then I'd say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And they would say, I believe. Down into the water. And then I would say, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And they would say, I believe, 
down they go. Now, fortunately, the early church just stopped with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If they did the whole creed, they probably, you know, might be considered torture. But it, they used it as a way to symbolize the connection between baptism, the statement of belief, and the conference of a new identity upon a person. This is the first thing that we see happen when we make statements of faith, when we profess what it is that we believe. We are accepting, we are inheriting, inheriting an identity related to what it is that we're saying. And so what we see happening with Peter is when he makes this statement, when he professes what he believes about Jesus, he receives a new identity. And with that identity comes an expectation of behavior, an understanding of the way that that type of person who has that identity is supposed to act in the world. And this is kind of the wordplay that Jesus makes with his name. He says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, on this solidness, on this firmness, on this dependability and this reliability, on this foundation, I'm going to build my church. It's on this commitment to this idea of who I am that what's going to happen next is going to take place. And so inherent in this identity of Christianity all throughout, you know, kind of the last 2,000 years, there's also an understanding of what it means to look like a Christian, what it means to act like and behave like a Christian. And I think we see so much of this in our modern world where a lot of the, the cause for people to leave the faith or to be apathetic to the faith or just to kind of be like, yeah, yeah, we kind of go to church, but it's not that important to us is because we have lost the connection between what we say that we believe, the identity that that bestows upon us, and the way that that identity and belief statement is supposed to manifest in our actions. What we have today in this world is Christians who don't look any different than people who don't claim to be Christians. So what would be the value of being a Christian if it doesn't manifest in any change in our lives? What would be the value of professing something that you believe, of saying, I believe certain things, this confers upon me a new identity that makes no impact and no change in my life? This was essential to the early understanding of what it meant to profess something that you believe in, to know that it changed who you said that you were and how you were committing to act and live in the world. And so as our beliefs begin to shift and change and mold our identity, what we see that they also do is they begin to shift and mold our behavior. And we see this beyond the Christian space or the religious space. What you believe shapes your behavior. If you believe certain people are good, you'll treat them in a certain way. If you believe certain people are bad, you'll treat them in a certain way. On and on and on it goes. The things that you believe impact how you act and live. The same is true for us as Christians and as people of faith. And then the last thing that we see happen is Jesus talks about this new identity, the behavior that's associated with it, and how that moves into and grows into a collection of people who share the same commitment who share the same belief system, who share the same identity and commitment to a series of behaviors. And he uses a word for it that we call church that really just means an assembly or a gathering of people. From the very beginning, it was never meant to communicate an idea about a location or about a building, which is why you heard Caroline when she was praying talk about how we know that church is not about a building or a service. It's about a people. When we end our service each and every week, we remind you that church is not a building or a service. It is a people because this is what we're trying to help us remember, is that this identity that we claim, 
These things that we say that we believe, they're supposed to impact our life. They're supposed to impact our choices, our values, our priorities, who we spend time with, who we don't spend time with, how we think about certain things, how we act, the way that we spend our money. It should influence every facet and aspect of our life. And what we do when we come together under the same identity, under the same commitment of belief, is we call it church. And this is what Jesus says. He says, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And this commitment to this idea, this gathering of people, it will be eternal. It will forever last. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's easy for us to just kind of live in this world where Christianity is about what you claim to know, about the ideas that you hold, but at its core, it's something far more significant. It's something far more impactful. It's an answer to the question, who do you say that I am? And if you really mean the answer that you share, then it'll change your life. It'll change your understanding of who you are and who you're supposed to be in the world. It'll manifest in different choices. It'll manifest in different actions and different ways of being. It gives you a different understanding of what it means to live this life. And you can find others like you, and we call it church. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to use this as a jumping off point to unpack what it is that we say when we say, I believe. And so I hope that you'll join us. I hope that you will kind of walk alongside this journey if you have grown up saying the creed your whole life. I hope that you'll dig in a little deeper. I hope that you'll kind of maybe challenge what you thought you meant when you were saying these words. And if the creed is something that's new to you or vaguely familiar, I hope that you'll listen with New Year's to maybe understand a deeper and richer understanding of what it is that we as Christians for 2,000 years have said in response to the question, who do you say that I am? And so to conclude our time together this morning, I think it would only be appropriate if we share these words of the Apostles' Creed together. So I'm going to put them on the screen behind me, and I invite you, as Christians have for 2,000 years, all around the world, to say these words together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for this morning. As we who have come to answer this question, who do you say that I am, have gathered together. You called it church, and we are grateful to be in this space together with others who profess the same beliefs, who have made a commitment to a new identity to a new lifestyle, to a new series of choices and actions that reflect the name and the identity you've given us as your sons and daughters. God, help us to take this idea, this commitment, and this belief out into the world to share it with others. 
God, help us be your extension in our families, in our workplaces, and in our communities. God, we love you, and we're grateful that we have this chance to come together to be reminded of who you have called us to be. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.